one more time with the glasses here. It gives me great pleasure to uh, introduce our next speaker. Um, as I was reading Grace's bio, actually, she and I are about the same age and have been in academia about the same amount of time. So, um, so it, was, it was lovely <laughs> thinking about uh, being in different parts of the country but doing similar things. So let me introduce you to Grace. She's been a college, university, religious studies professor and scholar of Buddhism for over 30 years. Her current research includes two major projects. She's writing a biography of the 20th century British uh, scholar of Buddhism, I.B. Horner, and she's exploring how Buddhist teachings and practices can serve as a resource for promoting recovery from moral injury. Grace is currently the ethical spiritual and religious life chaplain at Prescott College. She is also a professional editor and proofreader. Grace is the author of one book, Desire, Death, and Goodness, The Conflict of Ultimate Values in Theravada Buddhism, and many published articles and essays on women in Buddhism, Buddhism and environmental issues, and Christian Buddhist dialogue. Grace earned her Ph.D. in History and Literature of Religions, Buddhism, and Hinduism from uh, Northwestern University, her M.A. in Religious Studies from the University of Chicago Divinity School, and her B.A. in Religion from Swarthmore College. It was in her sophomore year at Swarthmore College that Grace first encountered Buddhism. Can we all go, ah? <laughs> Isn't that sweet? She's been studying Buddhism and practicing Vipassana meditation since 1975. Let me introduce you to Dr. Grace Burford. How's that? Will this work if I put it in my pocket? Okay, great. Seems like that's the best way. Okay. Can you hear me? Great. So, this isn't part of my talk. Don't count it against my time. Um, <laughs> I really want to acknowledge um, Dawn's um, lead up to what I want to say. I mean, that was substantial and beautiful and very informative to me. Um, about in the middle of your talk, I started picturing us writing a book together about <laughs> Caroline Reese Davids and Ivy Horner. Um, <clears throat> forgive my froggy voice, I have a bit of a cold. Um, 
So, if you've ever heard of I.B. Horner before today, um, it's probably because you've read some book on women in Buddhism or you've been studying polytexts. Because almost every book on women in Buddhism begins with acknowledging Horner. Because she published a book about women in Buddhism in 1930 that was then the only book on that subject for nearly 50 years. It's not a coincidence that those are the 50 years between the first and second waves of feminism in this part of the world. Um, She was also, as you've gotten glimpses of, the main force behind the Polytext Society's efforts to produce critical editions and translations of polytexts for most of the 20th century. So today I want to divide my talk into two parts. I want to tell you how she came to write this book about women in Buddhism. And then I want to talk a little bit about her contributions to the study and practice and understanding of Buddhism that we have today. So, who was she? Isseline Blue Horner was born in Essex, England on March 30th in 1896. Very few people seem ever to have called her Isseline. She was known to her family generally as Bobs or Bobby. And her friends called her Squizzy. (laughs) And many who knew her through her work, either as a librarian at Newnham College or in the Polytech Society, simply referred to her as Miss Horner. And like many women, if there were many women, who published at that time, uh, she published with her initials, I.B. Horner. Horner was named after her mother's mother, Isseline Blue, whom she called Gran. Gran called Horner Toby. (laughs) Gran had a cousin named Isseline Philpot, whom they all called Aunt Isseline. Aunt Isseline was a great friend of Caroline Augusta Foley, both before and after she married Thomas Reese Davids founder in 1881 of the Polytech Society, as you have heard. One time later in life, Horner recalled that when she was about 12, she was staying with relations in Kent, and I'm fairly certain these relations in Kent were Aunt Isseline and her family. And one day, Thomas and Caroline Rhys-Davids came to lunch. Although this would prove to be Horner's only meeting with Thomas Reese Davids, she would eventually meet up with Caroline again, as you have heard. Horner's family was what we would call rich. But because the family money came from trade, namely a construction business, they would always be considered middle class by British standards. As a member of the then newly moneyed middle class in England in the first decades of the 20th century, when women were just beginning to break into higher education, Horner had access to the kind of education previously available only to males of the highest social classes. 
By British societal norms for girls' education in the early 20th century, it was unusual that Horner started school around the age of nine, and at 16 she went to a girls' boarding school. Then Horner attended one of the two recently established colleges for women at the University of Cambridge, Newnham College. When Horner was at Cambridge, the Great War was in full swing. And in 1917, Horner suffered one of the greatest losses of her life when her only sibling, her beloved and doting elder brother Frith, was killed when a Royal Navy airship he was piloting went down into frigid seas in the North Atlantic during a storm. So how did this privileged, well-educated young woman get interested in Buddhism? You might be wondering. Well... After Horner completed her Cambridge degree, she stayed on at Newnham College working in the library until 1921 when the college principal invited her to accompany her sister, the principal's sister, D.J. Stephen, to India. Horner was 25. Miss Stephen was a Christian missionary with an interest in Indian philosophy whose missionary work focused on establishing schools for Indian women. As a single woman, Miss Stephen needed a traveling companion, and Horner was keen to go along. Just as a side note, the Stephen sisters were cousins of Virginia Woolf. (laughs) So it happened that Horner encountered Buddhism in 1921, when she and Miss Stevens stopped over in Ceylon, as Sri Lanka was called then, at least by the British, on their way to India. Although they were only there for four days, many years later, Horner would recall Buddhism's very great impact on her at that time. Indeed, after Horner had been in India for four months, she wrote to Gran, I long sometimes to get back to the Buddhists who think in a positive way of peace and brotherhood and a common humanity. This in stark contrast to her opinion of Hinduism, which she says is too revoltingly low down for me. (laughs) So here's a little glimpse of colonial life. Horner stayed in Mysore, India, with Miss Stephen for two years. Her letters home from this exotic British colony report on a life full of travel, walks, bicycle rides, scenery, air, flowers, birds, the weather, tennis, she was also a great tennis player, uh, lunch, tea, dinner, evenings in the drawing room, a little reading, lots of letter writing, plans for the future, friends, mostly young English women, Miss Stephen, another woman she always referred to as Dr. Courtauld, enthusiasm for all the fascinating things that she was seeing and doing, her preference for hot weather and spicy foods, and complaints about how the other women in the English community all gossiped terribly. (laughs) Horner returned to Cambridge in 1923, where she landed the job of Newnham College librarian a post she would keep until 1936 when she moved to Manchester. 
Evidently, being a college librarian did not occupy Horner fully. Soon she was looking for more to do. At some point, the relations in Kent, Aunt Isseline and her husband Henry, encouraged her to consult with their friend, Caroline Reese Davids, about possible future research and offered to write to Mrs. Reese Davids themselves, but Horner implored them not to do so, and instead, she took matters into her own hands and wrote to an American scholar who was a visiting professor in Cambridge at that time, a man by the name of Kenneth Saunders. <clears throat> she did connect with um, Professor Saunders, and um, they went to a local bookstore where, as far as I can tell, Horner bought her first book related to Buddhism. It was a translation of the Dhammapada. By March of 1925, she had begun her first work on Buddhism, which was cataloging his books, <laughs> Saunders' books. Um, uh, by the way, her women friends did not think much of that work. Uh, they thought that was kind of not, it was beneath her. Anyway, at this time, roughly 1924 to 26, Horner was corresponding regularly with Miss Stephen, who had stayed in India. Horner sought Miss Stevens' advice about what she should research. Among the subjects they discussed at some length was the status of women in various religions. And by June of 1925, Horner had brought up the subject of women in Buddhism. Shortly afterwards, Miss Stevens says she hopes Horner will learn Pali from a Cambridge professor named Dr. Rapson. So the pieces are falling into place. Thomas Rhys-Davids had died while Horner was in India. And Aunt Isseline had died in 1925. But the remaining relations in Kent were bent on connecting Horner with their friend, Caroline Rhys-Davids. Gran writes to Horner in October of 1925 that they, quote, motored over to Chipstead to call on Mrs. Rhys-Davids. Henry was so nice as to speak to her of you. Remember, she asked him not to do this, right? <clears throat> and to say that he had proposed that you should write to her. And she said she would be only too delighted to be of use in any way. I wonder if you have written. And if not, I think I should do so when opportunity offers. It seems more polite, and you need not follow the matter up if not so disposed. That's the end of the quote from Grand's letter. And so began a correspondence between Horner and Caroline Rhys-Davids that would continue until Caroline's death in 1942. <clears throat> in her first few letters to Horner in November of 1925, Caroline Rhys-Davids suggests that she research and write a book about the position of women in India at the rise of Buddhism. She refers Horner to her translation of the Psalms of the Sisters, the Terigata. And the only other two sources that exist for this topic at that time, a recent book in German by a German scholar named Winternitz, I think his first name is Maurice, on women in India before Buddhism, and a woman in Holland's thesis on Danone, she says there is no such book in English yet, and the field is open. She also comments that 
Winternitz is a good little soul, but no man can adequately write on such a subject. <laughs> In an ironic note, Caroline Reese Davids tells Horner she need not learn Pali in order to carry out the project on women in Buddhism because the main text, the Terigata, has been translated by her. And she says there's not much more to be got by knowing the original. She had great confidence in her skills. If Horner decides to learn Pali, she says, she suggests lessons by correspondence from Dr. William Steed, not Rapson, who has never proposed to know any Pali. Uh, Rapson was a Sanskrit scholar. So. Um, in November, so we're jumping ahead 11 months in this pivotal year of 1926, it seems that between these letters, uh, Horner has been learning Pali. And um, in fact, Caroline uh, Reese Davids comments favorably on her method of reading the text and encourages her to consult with her about translating particular passages. She says she will include Horner in her list of poly workers in the next Journal of the Poly Text Society report and offers to meet Horner in London to go through the sutta on Wisaka with her. Over the next three years, Horner continues to consult with Mrs. Reese Davids about translating the many poly texts she is working with. Horner also discussed translation of Pali terms and issues around women in ancient India with Winternets. And she kept up her lively correspondence with Miss Stephen about what she was researching and writing. In 1929, Routledge accepts her book for publication, and so she has to finish it. She finishes writing it, and then the book is published in 1930, and it gets glowing reviews. When it comes out, Horner is actually traveling in India with Dr. Kurt Courtauld, whose name I have trouble saying, um, and they're visiting Miss Stephen. So I just want to pause at this point. This is what I wanted to tell you about, how she came to write this book. And I just want to point out that at this, at this juncture in Horner's life, and really this was true for most of her life, she lived in a world of women, which was very unusual at that time. But she um, had lost her older brother, so her father uh, was the only man, really, in the family. And um, it's a family that's clearly dominated by the women. Her two most influential mentors are Miss Stephen and Mrs. Reese Davids. So, and she's working in a women's college. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating glimpse into a, a particular way of living at that time. Let me just soothe my throat here a second. Okay, so now, Horner as researcher and author and translator. Even before she had finished her book on women, Caroline Reese Davis suggested that Horner write her next book on a theme, actually, that, that Dawn touched on, uh, that Horner took in a slightly different direction than, than um, Mrs. Reese Davis had, had suggested. But it's this idea, in fact, the book is called um, early uh, the theory of man perfected uh, the early Buddhist theory of man per- perfected. So it's you can see it's picking up on that theme. Although Horner 
Okay, I'll make a little aside here. When I was in graduate school, um, it was just accepted wisdom that both Reese Davids and Horner were just kind of wacky, and you shouldn't pay any attention to anything that they did. Now, all of my professors of Buddhism for my entire life were men, so, and they were uh, left with this legacy from the latter half of Caroline Reese Davids' life. So um, I ignored that and read their books anyway <laughs> as a graduate student, and I was particularly taken with this second book of Horner's about the Arahant theory. But anyway, I won't go off on that. That's not my topic today. Um, Anyway, she, uh, Caroline Reese Davids, does offer Horner her own interpretation of this and suggests that she read the Sutta very carefully. Um, she also, this is a very intriguing aside in this, well, I don't know if it's an aside, it might have been the whole point of the letter. Uh, she mentions another idea. She says, I have another idea for you, but I can't tell you because I've already suggested it to someone else, another woman one who has said she wants to work for the Polytech Society, which you have not said. (laughs) And then she expresses her strong desire to have a woman or two who will work for the Polytech Society, whom she can eventually ask to serve on the committee and succeed her as president. And she insists this this woman must be English. Um... Okay, I'm going to skip that part. So, um, if you're interested in Lord Chalmers, another really interesting character, he and Horner were very close, and he was a a great champion of her. But back to Mrs. Rhys-Davids. She encouraged Horner to take up her next work. So, Horner began to edit for the Polytech Society, I guess having expressed her desire to work for the Polytech Society, the three-volume commentary on the Majjhima Nikaya. I want to say something about this. It, the Polytext Society's original goal was to take the smattering of sources of the Polytext, of the Tipitaka, and get it off of the palm leaf manuscripts and the various handwritten versions that were all over the Theravada Buddhist world at that point, and to print critical editions, to bring those together and try to come up with one critical edition of the entire canon. They, I mean, Thomas wasn't even thinking translation. It was all about just making it available for people who knew Polly to use. Um, but they quickly saw the demand for translation and uh, got into that as well. But Horner's first work was in producing this... Uh, critical edition of the commentary on the Majjhimin. During this same period, Horner wrote that second book on the Arahant theory, and she began publishing articles about Buddhism in scholarly journals in the UK and in Asia. She also began to give lots of talks about Buddhism to various groups in Cambridge and London, and she contributed articles to Buddhist publications in Salon, and she did this, both those things, for the rest of her life. Over the following decades, Horner would return to South Asia several more times and would develop many warm relationships with Theravada Buddhist monks and lay people there. Even before her third volume of the Majjhima Nikaya commentary was finished, 
Horner had already begun her second major PTS project, her translation of the Vinia. Horner would work on this six-volume translation of the guidelines and instructions for Theravada Buddhist monastic life over the next 28 years. Caroline Reese Davids died in 1942. Although she had groomed Horner to take over for her both as president and honorary secretary of the Polytech Society, and the PTS council members urged Horner to assume both of these positions immediately, Horner insisted that she would accept only the honorary secretary role for the time being. But as honorary secretary, Horner did effectively run the organization. Don't be fooled by the honorary part. In addition to editing and translating polytexts herself, she actively recruited scholars from Europe, the United States, and Asia to contribute without compensation. All of these people did this on a volunteer basis to the PTS's work with texts. Then she would politely but persistently push these scholars and help them to complete their projects. She monitored the stocks of PTS books and oversaw the reprinting of -of out-of-print and revised volumes. She single-handedly managed the entire process of book production, which required constant correspondence with editors, translators, printers, distributors, and even individual customers who bought their books directly from the PTS. She often packed up the books to be sent out, And it was not unusual for PTS customers to turn up at the official PTS address only to discover that it was where she lived. In addition to selling these visitors the books that they came to buy, Horner would often invite them in to have tea and discuss their interests in Pali and Buddhism. May I say that I was privileged to actually get a letter from Horner myself when I first ordered my uh, Pali English dictionary. Eventually, in 1950, she was just very encouraging. She just wanted everybody to study Polly who who expressed the least bit of interest, particularly if you were a woman. Eventually, in 1959, Horner did become president and honorary treasurer of the PTS. So she had all the top roles. Uh, she She held those positions until her death in 1981. So most of us have learned much of what we know about Buddhism by reading books that were written in English and by studying Buddhist scriptures that have been translated into English. In this way, our understanding of Buddhism has been shaped by the work of European and American scholars of the 19th and 20th centuries who fostered the study of Buddhism in the English-speaking West. This relatively small pool of dedicated intellectuals who were drawn to study Buddhism because of their interests in religion, history, philosophy, sociology, and linguistics, contributed just as much to the establishment of Buddhism in Europe and the Americas as did the Asian teachers who left their home countries to serve Asian immigrant communities and non-Asian converts in the West. The grand-scale transmission of Buddhism from Asia to the West that began in the 19th century, accelerated in the 20th century, and continues today, involves both linguistic and cultural translation. 
through the words and syntax, syntax the scholars used in their translations of Buddhist texts from Asian languages into English and French and German and Italian and Spanish, and through the explanations they offered in those languages of Buddhist teachings and practices, they influenced how most non-Asians and even many Asians think about Buddhism. What are the central teachings of Buddhism? What practices are crucial? To a large extent, our answers to these questions today reflect the influence of these first generations of Western scholars of Buddhism. So I just want to close by reflecting briefly on uh, Horner's legacies. Certainly her book on women in Buddhism, I've already touched on that. Um, And luckily I want to say, uh, just note, she did live long enough to see second wave feminism. And she was so honored by all the women who got interested in women in Buddhism at that time. She was constantly being asked to write forewords and prefaces to, to their books. And they all, as I no- noted earlier, they always acknowledged her. In the 40 years, nearly 40 years, that Horner managed the operations of the PTS, she shepherded 56 new PTS volumes and 223 reprints of PTS books through the publication process. In addition to editing four and translating 15 volumes of polytexts herself. I want to give you just one brief example of how this is a legacy. Um, A son of one of her cousins, whose name was Jeremy Horner, and you might know as Amaro Biku, uh, had uh, related his experience with her Vinaya translation to me in this way. He said, It was shortly after I had returned to England from Thailand, after having been in the monastery there for a couple of years, that my father casually remarked one day, You must take after my cousin Bobby. I think she wrote a book about Buddhism. <laughs> I was taken aback to hear this, as when I had seen I.B. Horner on the spines of all the Vinaya books in the small Thai um, temple library, I had had the thought, I wonder if this is a family member. (laughs) Oh, yes, very likely, I'm sure. I thus asked him, is she called I.B. Horner? That's right, he replied. Her real name's Isseline Blue Horner, but we always called her Bobby. I asked Dachan Amaro how widely these translations were available to monastics and how they used them. And he said, I would imagine that most Buddhist monastic libraries in countries outside of Asia would have copies of these. They are the root texts that we all use to refer to for Vinaya studies. In Asia, I would guess that they are probably confined to university departments and the few monasteries where a number of Western monastics are living. We consult them all the time. They are the only completely comprehensive reference to the Vinaya text in English, rather than being a synopsis or commentary on the Vinaya rules. Thus, for our annual Vinaya study sessions held each summer, and for individual questions regarding any particular rule, those volumes are the source texts we refer to. The fact that they are all very well indexed adds to their usefulness as a reference text on the many legal and discipline-based questions that arise. It is true that countless scholars, Buddhist 
Buddhist monks and Buddhist lay practitioners have relied on Horner's editions and translations of Pali texts. Yet this is not likely to be her most lasting legacy in the Buddhist world. Such works are inevitably limited by the scope of understanding of the time in which they are produced, and the resulting errors they contain are quickly pointed out by subsequent scholars who work to improve and eventually replace the works of their predecessors. Horner's more lasting impact will probably stem from the facts that her strong leadership and occasional financial support kept the PTS going during her lifetime, and that the money that she left to the Polytech Society when she died provided a stable financial foundation for this organization that continues to make its work possible today. Horner's other lasting legacy is more subtle, namely her contributions to the continuation of the Buddha Dhamma in our world. Through her work for leadership of and financial legacy to the PTS, her countless talks and articles on Buddhism addressed to Buddhists and non-Buddhists alike in the West and in Asia, and her friendships with and generous support of individual Buddhists and Buddhist organizations, Horner spread the teachings of the Buddha, thus enacting the Buddha's directive to his followers to go forth and teach and explain the Dhamma for the good of the many, for the welfare of the many, for the happiness of the many. Thank you. Thank you, Grace. We have about 15 minutes for questions. Thank you. Could you say a little more about uh, what intrigued you about the Arhant theory? (laughs) Yes, well, it wasn't so much the theory itself, it was what she did in that book. Because I had taken upon myself in my doctoral dissertation to read polytexts to try to find evidence for um, what would indicate what, what was an old strata? So <laughs> the, employ, employing that method that Caroline Reese davids initiated, but that had really fallen out of favor. When I was in graduate school, it was just like, you just did not do this. But I had this idea that I wanted to get back and find a really, really old text. And it was, in, in the end, um, possible to figure that out. So I found an old text, and it was so old that there is a canonical commentary on it. And then there is a commentary, there's a later commentary, a non-canonical commentary on both of them, on each of them. So I was taking it on to try to figure out if I could track some changes in some core ideas. And um, it, when I found her book, I thought, oh, somebody else did this. Why didn't I know about this? So it was really the method and the focus on really trying to make it real. I wanted to know. And that was, that's not okay. That was not okay in the, in the scholarly circles. In fact, I had a lot of trouble getting my book published after I, I wrote my dissertation, got my degree, and then I, I transformed it into a book. Uh, so it went from 600 pages to 250. And um, I had a lot of trouble getting it published because at that time, 
scholars were not supposed to engage with the work they were doing as if it mattered, you know, as if it would, would be inform our lives. And, 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 and I thought this was very condescending, as in, what, those people think that way and, and we just, we're better than that and so we can't, like, try to... Anyway, I'm going on too long about that, but that's what intrigued me because that's what she was doing. Thank you. So the name of a book that you wrote, um, I just got Desire, Death. <laughs> Desire, Death, and Goodness. I am very intrigued <clears throat> to hear about that. Well, it is the book where I'm, I'm tracing the conflict of ultimate values in Theravada Buddhism. And in a nutshell, what I'm arguing is that if you look at the older strata of, of texts, you see, in particular, this this one text, you see... That and then compare them with the commentaries, you can see that there was an effort to try to make it all make sense as a, as a uniform teaching. Um, and in that older text, there's, there's a couple of different things that are going on in that text that don't necessarily go together. Um, and I, was, I titled it Desire, Death, and Goodness because that's really what it was about. It, because that's what that text was about. It was about um, what does it mean to live the good life? What, is it, what should we be doing? What is the Buddha telling everybody we should be doing? Well, we should be good. We should be doing good things. And how do we do that? Well, we have to undermine desire. And it was about death because he didn't really talk about death. In, in that text. It's not, it's not about multiple lifetimes. It's not about karma. The word karma doesn't appear in that text. And so by the time you get to Buddha Gosa, certainly, he has to make this all make sense within where Theravada Buddhism has gone in that time, which is a lot about karma and multiple lifetimes and that that's what it's all about. And to me, there's a conflict there because, well... That's the book. You have to read the book. But there's a conflict there. And uh, it, it is hard to read that book because it's very hard to find at this point. But if we get enough people together, maybe we can get... Somebody at Shambhala just asked me if it was in print. So mm, we'll see. Thank you so much. Um, I have two questions. Um, one is, is there anything written about her personal life or anything you found? about her personal life. And the second is, did she, maybe I missed it, but did she meditate or practice? Ah, I was hoping somebody would ask me this because I wanted to follow up on that discussion that you all had earlier. And I really appreciated your comment because uh, in this book that I'm writing, which is a lot about her personal life, I did not have time to go into that today, but it's fascinating. There's a little teaser there. Um, a lot more. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm framing the book, at least at this point, around two questions. Here's the glimpse of her personal life that I'll give you. Was she a lesbian? And the answer is yes. Okay. And um, the other question is, was she a Buddhist? Because I really want to explore the role of identity and labels and what does it mean to say you are something. Um, 
And she was such a stickler for finding everything that she did in the text. If it wasn't there, she was not going to say it. Um, and, and so that was her focus. That was her practice. And uh, she was asked one time, are you a Buddhist? And um, she said, no, because I don't meditate. I think that's a fascinating answer. Mm-hmm. And, and in the end, she doesn't get to say, you know, she doesn't get to say whether she was a Buddhist or not, you know, because the, the label means different things to different people. She didn't want to be presumptuous. She knew Buddhists. <laughs> she really knew Buddhists, these, you know, practitioners who were very, very serious she had a lot of close ties to practitioners in, in Sri Lanka. And, um, and some in London as well. But, um, yeah, she, um, that, was, that, was her, that was her response. But really knowing, knowing her to the depth that I do at this point, which is not, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I've read a lot of stuff, personal stuff that she's written. I, I'm not quite sure how to take that answer. She might have simply been deflecting the question. Yes. Oh. She's coming with the microphone. It's a little tight over here. Thank you, Sue. Welcome, Grace. When uh, she first went to India and the four-day uh, stay, um, and it sounds like she was, uh, when she went with Stevens, um, uh, it sounds where was it in Salon? Yes, yes, in Colombo. Yeah, do, it sounds like she was incredibly um, impacted by that. <clears throat> so she said. <clears throat> Is there very much known about what occurred there? Mm. Um, and if you know much, can you say more about that? What she did was she got shown around by Buddhist monks to various temples. That's and, what they did. And, and so she interacted with the, mm-hmm. the monks. And mm-hmm. so somehow she um, loved them. Yes. She yeah. kind of fell in love. Yeah. 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 How lovely. I know. <laughs> yeah, and I, 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 this is another thing I wanted to say about Dawn's research and, and mine. We present these, this information to you. It takes a lot of digging to find this information, to find where the sources are, um, and then to spend the time to go through them. Um, Yeah, I mean, I've been working on this book a long time. I've been been to Cambridge five times for research. Mm -hmm. And um, it's... So it took me a long time to piece together what I told you about how she found out about Buddhism and, mm-hmm. and got interested in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. You have to read a lot of letters to get to the one. I remember the day when I found that letter to Gran, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. about how great the Buddhists are. I was like, there it is, there it is. So, and very did exciting. She, did the she, life of a biographer. And did she encounter any Buddhism in India? Or, uh, no. No, I didn't think None. so. Yeah, not at all. This will be our last question. So it seems that during the time that Ivy Horner was being mentored by Carolyn Rhys-Davids, this was during her period of spiritualism and becoming less popular Uh in the scholarly world. I'm curious if there's any uh, 
what is anything known about how they interacted on that particular topic and this idea of a being propelling itself? Yes. So um, this is what was so unfair about my graduate professors just dismissing them both. They were very different. Um, Horner was very respectful and grateful to and, and fond of Caroline Reese Davids, but she did not accept the whole thing about the spiritualism at all. In fact, she was quite opposed to it. Not, and she never said that in reference to Caroline Reese Davids, but I was telling Gil yesterday, she had this you know, decades-long battle going on with Christmas Humphreys, who was the head of the London Buddhist Vihara for a while. And, and he, she just, uh, Edward Konza writes about this, that, that uh, the two of them were just at odds because she uh, just couldn't stand the fact that he would cite Madame Blavatsky as a Buddhist source. So she had no interest in anything that wasn't grounded in the Pali texts. Um, on the other hand, she also wrote a couple of articles about anatta and atta and her interpretation of this. She did not find it completely clear that the Buddha taught that there was no self. I just have to leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you so much. You are very welcome. As you can tell, I can talk a lot about Horner, and I'll be here all day. So if you want to. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I just would like to speak a little bit about uh, Tanisara. You've probably heard of her. She was uh, one of the first four nuns in the um, Ajahn Chah tradition in the West, and she ordained in Amaravati in the early 80s. And she was a nun for about 12 years, and uh, she's now... Uh, lay teacher, and I'm sure you've heard of her. She teaches together with her husband, Kitty Saro, who has been a monk also in the Ajahn Chah tradition. And Danisara had the idea, together with Gil, you know, to, um, um, to this benefit uh, today. And she can't be here today for several reasons, and she has asked me, you know, to introduce her latest book. It's called Time to Stand Up, an Engaged Buddhist Manifesto for Our Earth, The Buddha's Life and Message Through Feminine Eyes. And she has offered, I think, 65 uh, books. They, uh, on all of the donations which will come in for these books will go also towards the benefit today. And the books will come in the early afternoon, and they will be put out in the corner there, outside. So I... And Tanisra asked me to give a little plug for this book. And I really, I find it's an excellent work. 
And it does what Grace mentioned before, you know, making the practice real and really inform our lives because it's all about, you know, the connection uh, between our delusions and how they are manifesting right now in the form of the climate crisis and how this is something we can use, you know, to kind of provide a sense of urgency, really, to make that practice really real and to make a difference. And she, you know, tells us about her own story, how through the practice she got more and more aware how important it is to really make it real by the way you are living. And I really suggest that you read this book and at the same time you can also support Aloka Vihara. So it's a great opportunity. Thank you. Gil? Oh, sorry. Question? Jill? Sorry. Whoops. Oh, no problem. Um, I thought it was this was going to happen later, but um, <laughs> um, I, yes, go ahead. Uh, so I'm Jill Boone, and I was the founder of Serenaloka. And there's a lot of people in this room that really helped to support um, the beginnings of Serenaloka and the ongoings of Serenaloka, and you know, continue to support it and. And, um, you know, I'm no, I don't really know what I'm supposed to say today besides, uh, besides the fact that, you know, that really the organization was formed to, um, to help support um, women in Buddhism that, are, that have chosen the monastic path. And, uh, you know, we, Sarah Naloka and the board was very instrumental in helping, um, you know, Aya Nandabodi and Aya Sanchachita to... Uh, you know, to get to Bakuni ordination, full ordination, and uh, it was seen as a very strong and um, important uh, step for women monastics. So I just want to encourage everybody here to, you know, continue to get educated. Uh, this has been a wonderful morning of, of talks so far, but to continue to get educated on, you know, really the challenges that they face as women monastics and to you know, to support this growing uh, um, trend, I guess you could call it in um, in America to support women as bhikkhunis and um, in this tradition. So, so the monastery is um, well. When they came here, you know, they came for one month the first time, and then we decided yes, they would. You know, we could invite them and we could actually support them. At, on a long-term basis, and we invited them back and had to get permission at that point from um, the monastery that they were part of, and uh, we invited them back, and they lived in San Francisco for a number of years in a small house that we rented for them, and um, it was all very exciting, you know, the whole sense of like, oh my gosh, believe me, 10 years ago, or maybe not 10, but 20 years ago, I never would have thought that I was helping to found a monastery in uh, <laughs> in California but um, so that so the idea always was that they would have a rural place so that they could train um, women um, to become nuns um, that chose to go on that path and also to support um, both men and women in their practice 
And so just recently, they've purchased a property in Placerville and have a monastery there, and you can go visit. You know, you have to write ahead, but you can go visit and stay there and participate in and, um, you know, the life there. And if you are so called, you can, um, you know, possibly go there to ordain if you're a woman. So men are welcome to come and visit, but women are welcome to come visit and consider um, becoming a nun. So it's just very exciting. So they mentioned in the very beginning, Gil did, that they purchased this property and um, were able to get a mortgage for what they did not have. And so, you know, the idea is that through some fundraisers and some um, support that they'll get that that'll be paid off and and they'll be able to, um, you know, continue there and build some more cooties for living and visitors and, and all. So... And I appreciate your ongoing and continuing and early support of them, Gil. <laughs> I just want to say that. So, the, um, so Ren, did you want to talk too? I, I think you said Okay. <laughs> but, you know, Ren is here, and, and um, she's on the board, and um, I don't know, are there other board members here? No, not today. I came in from Seattle specifically to attend this, so um, I'm just so happy to hear, um, to see everybody and, and hear these talks, so. So in, in a few minutes, we're going to have the meal offering, and um, and uh, you know maybe you'll you'll forgive me for what I'm about to say. Um, one is uh, a, a little bit unusual for me here. For those of you who know about IMC, uh, it's a little bit unusual to make a wholehearted, all-out fundraising request. <laughs> so. So those of you who have been around here before know how unusual for me to do that is, and I do it because of my big, heartfelt enthusiasm for these nuns and what they're doing, and the tremendous importance for what they're doing in our society and for all of us. Uh, all of you understand well the, some of the uh, reasons why women and in Buddhism and religious women and the nuns uh, are often... Uh, uh, are not given the first level support for uh, their lives, for practicing, for monasteries. And, you know, their, their monastery up in Placerville is a wonderful place. I haven't seen it. And it's fantastic it's up there. And uh, I'm very enthusiastic about it. And it's, you know, it's a relatively modest place. It's a really, you know, in terms in terms of monasteries and what already exists in America and Buddhists for monks and all this, this is a pioneering thing. And, uh, and uh, you know, it, it's sad, you know, that uh, the, the disparity of support that's been given to monks and nuns and all that. So um, we're hoping to, that this is the beginning of a difference and we can uh, bring uh, equality. And, and within a few years, uh, their, their monastery and Tataloka's monastery and other places will be seen as uh, powerhouses for uh, Buddhist practice here in the West. Maybe it already is, but uh, really be recognized as that. And, and so your support will, uh, will contribute to that. So thank you. So, um, I, so the idea for the meal offering is that uh, there's two buffet tables out there, and they'll walk down the middle, and I'm not sure who's going to be sitting on either side offering, and if some of you have uh, food you'd like to offer it hasn't already been put out, uh, we have to figure out how that's going to happen, and so we'll get ourselves set up for that now. And and um, thank you for coming.